Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm James from Salt Lake City. I'm Jason R. Wallace from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. With the heat fresh off of an NBA championship, Miami might be the center of the professional basketball world right now. But if you're looking to play street ball, filmmaker Kevin Coolio says you should head to the Big Apple. Uh, New York City is, first of all, the mecca of the sport. Uh, you don't have any other city in the world with 700 playgrounds uh, that are all unique uh, with that special uh, architecture and colors and difference of backboards, nets, rims, uh, double rims, single rims, like... You can go to Chicago, to Miami, to LA, and you don't you don't feel the same basketball culture. It's it's different. There is a basketball culture in in those cities, but uh, it, there is nothing like New York City. It's bullseye. Coming up, we'll delve into the culture of pickup basketball and find out why each of the hundreds of courts in New York City is a unique experience. We really looked at each park as a key interviewee. You know, like each park has its own story. That's Bobito Garcia. I'll talk to him and his co-director Kevin Coolio about their new documentary, Doing It in the Park. And writer Mary Roach's new book, Gulp, takes readers on a tour of the human digestive system. It's a notably obedient set of organs. Chewing stimulates saliva. What I love is that you can you could put a sock in your mouth and start to chew on it. And your body will go like, okay, boss, I guess you want to eat a sock. I'm here to help you. I'm going to moisten that sock. We're going to get it down. I'm going to, I'm here for you. Mary Roach will guide us from the top to the bottom of human digestion. Plus, Sean O'Neill and Alex Dowd from the AV Club will suggest a couple of new releases worth checking out. And I'll talk about the album where Prince became Prince. Plus, gospel singer Shirley Caesar will share the song that changed her life. All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Some basketball is played on carefully polished hardwood floors by millionaires with their own signature shoes. Most basketball, though, is played on cracked asphalt in neighborhood parks by teenagers dreaming about the big time and grown men who wrap up their knees and ankles to get out there one more time. Bobito Garcia and Kevin Coolio's new documentary, Doing It in the Park, is about the playground basketball players. Folks like this. Pee Wee Kirkland, that's what they call me. Last of a dying breed, legend in two games. Gregory Brown, also known as uh, Elevator Man number two, out of deference to Yuri Cobb, who was the real Elevator Man. Kenny the Jet Smith, I represent Queens, New York. Darren Filler, playground legend, a.k.a. Primal Fair, a.k.a. the most sought-after Brooklyn's beast. Corey Homicide Williams. Tamara Marsh, a.k.a. Ball Girl. Michael Drake, skin-tight Big Mike. Ball Norman, a.k.a. they call me the movie, okay? People know my name, but not my address. Garcia and Golio spent 90 days playing basketball in the parks of New York City, and their documentary celebrates everything about the passionate men, women, and even children whose lives revolve around who's got next. Kevin Bobito, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, thank you for thank having you. us. It's great to have you on the program. Um, I, I want to ask you first about when each of you personally started playing basketball. 
I grew up in France and I started playing basketball at six years old. Um, my father was a soccer player, so I don't really uh, know the the motivations that pushed me uh, to play basketball. But um, I play organized basketball from my six years old to till now, and uh, it has been a huge part of my life. And I've been playing since 1973. I'm proudly born in 1966 and uh, still playing every single day. My father passed me a basketball and... Uh, yeah, just growing up in New York, you can't escape the culture. There's 700 playgrounds here, so uh, it was. I caught the fever very, very early on, and and it's ne- it's never been lost. Okay, so what motivates the two of you guys to get out there on the court when maybe you don't even know who you're going to be playing with or, or or against on your Saturday when when you could just be at home having some orange juice. <laughs> 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 Well, orange juice, orange juice is great before you leave, um, leave to the court. No, For Bob, me, it's, I, it's I, either I think, or, orange juice or basketball. You must pick. <laughs> <laughs> I think personally for me, uh, it's the joy of playing pickup in particular is that it's in a, uh, a context where there's no coaches, no referees, and no organization, no schedules. And so it's a constant surprise. I mean, Kevin and I went to 180 courts in 75 days throughout the five boroughs to create our film during the park pickup basketball NYC. And, and during those, during that journey, I mean, there were countless games that we played against five foot two, five foot three high school kids that destroyed us. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you don't go to a park with a scouting report about your opponent like you would uh, when you have, you know, in, when you have leagues and tournaments. And also, it's a spontaneous uh, movement all the time with your own teammates. You have four players that you may not have ever seen before in your life and may never see again. And you have to figure out how to win uh, in a in a complete free-form fashion. So I think that that's fascinating for me as, as a player and as a, as, a, as a documentarian. So tell me about this other world of people who are playing basketball, like seriously, competitively, um, who are in their well into their 20s and, and even their 30s and sometimes 40s, um, for whom the NBA isn't isn't a, a realistic goal and, and may not be the goal anyway. Well, uh, you know, quite honestly, uh, here in New York, we have 75 tournaments during the summer um, for adults, uh, children. So there's a lot of development and there's a lot of players who come out of college or may not have even played in college who actually get become exceptional uh, in their late 20s, early 30s. And quite honestly, good enough to play in the NBA uh, but at that point, you know, the, the marketing system, the, the farm system, it, it doesn't work in their favor anymore. So you see them playing pickup. You see them playing in the tournaments like the San Francisco Pro-Am. Uh, you know, for example, a guy out of the Bay Area, Hook Mitchell, you know, legend who Jason Kidd and Gary Payton would point to as the best player out of their city ever, including themselves. And, and you're talking about NBA champions and, and Hall of Famers. But, you know, the the playground... You know, one of the lines that we loved in the film, and we used it at the end during the narration, was, you know, you can play high school basketball for four years, you can play college for four years, you play college, uh, pro potentially for 10 or 12 overseas in France or wherever. You can play in the pickup for your for the entirety of, of infinity. I mean, it's it's there for everyone. And so we tried to really 
encompass all the entire community that 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 lo- lives and breathes this sport. Your movie, uh, your movie, doing it in the park is specifically about pickup basketball in New York City. Tell me what's different about uh, about playground basketball in New York City. Uh, New York City is first of all the mecca of the sport. Uh, you don't have any other city in the world with 700 playgrounds uh, that are all unique uh, with that sp- special. Uh, architecture and colors and difference of backboards, nets, rims, uh, double rims, single rims. Like, I mean, me growing up in France, we had like the same playground on every uh, every corner of the of our neighborhood. And um, coming to New York City as a photographer, I've been lucky enough to document the, the playground scene and the, those beautiful empty basketball courts. And there is no other city that has been cultivated that abundance of, of basketball courts since the, the early uh, 20th century. And um, you can go to Chicago, to Miami, to LA, and you don't you don't feel the same cult- basketball culture. It's it's different. There is a basketball culture in in those cities, but uh, it, there is nothing like New York City. Maybe each of you could tell me about one court in New York that's particularly important to you. So me, the one that would be the most important for me is the the first one uh, that I, where I play basketball, uh, which is Morningside in One uh, 118th Street in um, in Harlem. Uh, because when I first mo- came to New York City in 2004, Bobby Doe brought me to that to that playground, and I played my first game of 21, uh, which is something I, I didn't know about because I didn't grow up playing the game of 21 in France. So it, the court was. A beautiful discovery and the game of twenty one as well, which I ended up winning. So <laughs> that's that's he also loves special. to add that every time we get interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that 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 court was really special for me. Yeah. What about for you, Bobito? Yeah, I think for me, Jesse, uh, I grew up. Uh, I, I don't want to say across the street. I actually grew up inside the playground of PS one sixty three, which to the basketball community was known as the goat. To the hip hop world, it was known as Rocksteady Park. Um, and I, you know, it was incredible to see both, uh, cultures coinciding and, you know, and nurture being nurtured there. And Earl Manigote is who the, the park is named after. We paid homage to him in our film. And it was a real honor for me to, to, you know, to show respect to someone who mentored me in my childhood. And, you know, even today in 2013, I still play there. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are the co-directors of the new documentary, Doing It in the Park. It's a tour of the hundreds of unique outdoor basketball courts in New York City and the pickup players who play on them. So uh, let's talk for a second about some of the games that are played on New York City street courts that folks from other places might not know. Uh, Kevin, tell me what 21 is. So basically 21 is um, every man for himself. So the guy that has the ball has to play against everybody. And the goal is to score 21 points. So you, once you score a, a bucket, you have to validate that, that bucket with three other free throws. Uh, so it goes on and on and on until you reach uh, 20 point, 21 points. And then you have to break ice to win the game by a three-point shot uh, on the top of the key. And um, it's really interesting because you can be... 11 or 12 or 16 on a basketball court and guys won't be running a 5 on 5 full court they will be playing 21 on a half court and so this is something really um, amazing because when we were shooting the film we went in Lefrak City for example and we 
found those kids playing in flip-flops and there were like maybe like 20, 25 on the court playing. And uh, this is the only game that really helps you to create, uh, to express your creativity and, and work on your handle, work on your, your jump shot and your um, aggressiveness as well. I want to play a clip from the movie. Um, this is uh, Kenny Smith, who uh, is now a basketball commentator on television, but was also a star in the NBA and grew up playing basketball in New York City. Um, and he's talking about this other particularly particular to New York form of, of street basketball. Booties, one-on-one contest. The loser got to stand against the fence, and you take the ball, and they have to bend over, and you throw the ball at them. So that's another thing. Humiliation is in the park. All the girls are watching. You standing on the fence, and the guy's throwing a ball at you. That's best. That's play. That's playground basketball at its best. That don't happen in the NBA. You can't even put a dollar sign on that one. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about how playing a game like playing a game like Twenty One, or or even just playing for the stakes of if you lose, you got you have to stick your butt out and get pegged with a basketball. Yeah. Um, how that affects the the style of play on these courts? <laughs> well, I could say as a child, uh, we played booties up. I, I haven't seen anyone play booties in some time, and I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it probably does still exist, um, uh, we ha- we didn't see it while we while we were making the film. But um, you know, all the old timers are familiar with that game, and and you know what it does is is it creates a sort of approach. That you do not, you absolutely do not want to lose because a, you don't want to be humiliated, and then b, you don't want to feel pain. Um, I mean, you know, when we would play tw- uh, twenty one and and playing booties, uh, you know, some guys really threw the ball pretty hard at you, yeah. But I mean, every, every once in a while, like you get a nice guy that you want to hurt you because normally the guy that threw the softest knew that he might lose the next time and he didn't want you to peg him. So the guys who were, like, really good, like, threw it at the hardest because they knew they were never going to lose. So You know, New York City basketball players are are known as great guards. And um, I can imagine that part of that ball-handling tradition comes from playing a lot of a game where you're playing one against four and just a big part of your job is just keeping the ball in your hands long enough to take a shot. Absolutely. I can say that growing up, I didn't realize until we were actually making the film, the impact that 21 uh, has ha- has had on New York City ball handlers for decades. It seems like there's also an element in this style of playing basketball that is about uh, style. Um, it's not just about winning, but a- about doing it in a s- stylish way. Yes, I would agree. I mean, there is a style and there is a dress code uh, and that is, that is uh, linked to that style. And uh, you need to, to look the part to, to, to play in pickup basketball in New York City. Bobito, um, you're, you're a sort of an original b-boy and a, and a hip-hopper of very long standing. And you're old enough to remember... Um, you know, hip-hop in the uh, 1970s and 80s. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that struck me about uh, about the film was the emphasis among especially the star players of the courts of, of New York City on doing something that, that was sort of like touring. 
which is to say going from court to court and even from borough to borough, establishing their name um, across the city. And, and that that was a very important part of being a star street player, in addition to being great on your home court. Anywhere there was a sound of a ball, whatever ball, we was going to play. We didn't have to know anybody. We walk in the park, call next. We got next. And we sit and we wait. And we hoop. Get up, go to another borough, get on the train. And that's what we did all day. Then go back home, go to sleep, get up, do it again. And mm-hmm. that reminded me a lot of... Um, especially of graffiti writers, who, I was I was just about to say that whose, whose goal in, in writing on trains was all was city. to yeah exactly was to go all city. Mm-hmm. I, I mean I think you you hit it on the head. Uh, you know, uh, there's also I mean for for decades this dates back to the you know to the newspapers documenting high school basketball and you know every no matter what grade you're in your goal is to make first team all city. And so I think that that sort of uh, selection, notoriety, uh, uniqueness, I think that permeates to the playground. So it's it's you know, every court has its own rules. Every court has its own rules. Stick around. I'll talk more with Bobito Garcia and Kevin Coolio about New York's pickup basketball culture. Plus, Shirley Caesar will reveal the gospel song to change her life. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. It's summer now, and come September, you're going to wish you had stretched it out just a little bit longer. So, get planning. Hop on a boat with Mark Marin, Eugene Merman, Cameron Esposito, Dan Deacon, John Roderick, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, and a ton of other great comedians and musicians. And we've got a new addition to the lineup, Wyatt Cenac. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for music, comedy, and of course, shuffleboard. Tickets available now at boatparty.biz, a real website for a real event. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is sponsored by Splitsider.com, KCRW, and MailChimp. I'll see you in the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Bobito Garcia and Kevin Coolio. They're the directors of the new documentary, Doing It in the Park. It's about the world of pickup basketball in New York City. I want to talk a little bit about a, a few of the players who you profile in the film and talk to in the film. Um, the first is a, a truly legendary street basketball player named Pee Wee Kirkland, who makes quite an impression in the movie. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, about who Pee Wee Kirkland is. We uh, we paid particular attention to to setting up Pee Wee Kirkland in our film by giving uh, his story concrete facts. I mean, he's a playground legend. Uh, he got incarcerated, but at the same time, he was a star at Norfolk State, uh, MVP of the CIA championship back in the 60s. And that uh, his teammate was Bobby Dandridge, who was an NBA champion years later. Uh, Pee Wee Kirkland went through the whole season with only uh, two turnovers, which is unheard of, unheard of. Um, and he was also cited by Sports Illustrated as, as the quickest guard in the country back in the 60s uh, in college. So... 
Pee Wee is is as official of a of a ball playing legend, you know, NBA or not that that you'll find. Uh, it's unfortunate that he never got a chance to really uh, see the extent of his abilities in in the pros. But uh, he he wound up in prison and spent uh, I think seventeen years in inside incarcerated. I want to talk about uh, another one of the players that you. Uh, that you highlight in the film it's this dude called Blackjack Ryan and I, I'm going to play <laughs> I'm going to be I'm going to play a clip uh, of him talking but I, I kind of want to describe what he looks like he's he's got sort of big gleaming white teeth and a brush cut and he looks like a guy who would play a fire chief in a movie <laughs> Um, just, you should have seen him with a mustache yeah. 20 years ago. He used to look like a porn star straight up. Like, big, that's my man, though. Big, big Miami muscly Vice. arms, like much, much bigger than most basketball players. Just a, an absolutely arresting man, particularly when he's playing basketball. Let's take a listen to it. I didn't come here until my early 20s because I didn't think I was good enough to come to West 4th and play. I, one day I said, you know what? I'm going to West 4th. I'm going to try to get down. Before I got on the court, when the team, when they were down one side, I was down the other side. Bam. Bam. When they went down that way, I went down that way. Bam. Bam. Just letting everybody know. Bam. Bam. And the first dude I met, Sherman, I remember him yelling, "Uh uh-oh, we got a white boy Duncan. We got a white boy Duncan. He's only six feet. He got a white boy Duncan. And that's how I first met Sherm. The next game, I got on, and it's been heaven ever since. (laughs) <laughs> he's a character nice. you gotta meet him jesse <laughs> man i want nothing more than to meet him <laughs> please introduce us yeah. uh, just just hope that he doesn't take his dentures out <laughs> i mean seriously he has dentures <laughs> yeah he's he's, one he's, of he's 52 years old now it's incredible that he's he's just a he's such a light basically mm-hmm. he's like a beacon um for all of us i mean yeah, I'm not too far behind him in age, but I aspire to be in my 50s and playing as much as Jack does and, and dominating the way he does as well. I mean, he's he's incredible. One really interesting thing that we see in the film is the kind of court culture, um, the way that the players interact as the game is going on and um, and after the you know, after the last point is scored. You know how long I have to wait to play? Man, I, mean, I used to come to the park, I couldn't, I couldn't buy next. You know, I'd be waiting 10 next. Then I got next. Somebody coming in with a, with a name, he'd take my next. Yeah, and the beauty of it is compared to organized basketball is that you, when you go to a court, you don't even know how much minutes or hours, how many minutes or hours you're going to stay on, on the court mm-hmm. because sometimes you, you, you're you going to play a first game and you're going to lose. So you might have to wait two hours before playing uh, the next yeah. game. And um, so, so and sometimes you just win and you stay like four hours on the court and uh, you go back at home at 9 p.m. and uh, you're really exhausted. That's a, that's a great point, Kev. Yeah, I never thought about that because like when you go to an organized game, it's the game is 40 minutes. And yeah. That's it. After the game, that's... You're done. You and don't get it unless you get coach, overtime. And if you're on the bench, the coach <laughs> yeah. doesn't want you to be on the court, so you don't even play. So, <laughs> so yeah, this is what the beauty of it is that you you never know what what to expect on a on a playground court. The, the other thing that's cool about the playground outdoors, in particular, is that there's no membership. It's not like an indoor gym where you have to have access. Or, 
and uh, or pay a fee or it's, it's the court. It's you know it's it's maintained by Parks and Recreation locally, and you, know, you hope that there's a rim <laughs> that stays up. And uh, if you're lucky, you might have nets, but you know it's it's there for everybody. I want to ask you about one more player who you profile in the film, um, and he's probably the most legendary figure in the in the history of playground basketball. And you knew him personally, Bobito. That's Earl the Goat Manigoat. Um, can you tell me a, a little bit about who the goat was? Absolutely, Earl Earl Manigoat. Um, uh, sort of like the son of Harlem, played at Benjamin Franklin, t- led his team to the the championship at Master Square Garden in junior high school. He broke the the, the single game scoring record, I think, with fifty three or fifty six points. Inventor of the double dunk. And Earl Ma- Manigault essentially is a legend amongst legends, but unfortunately, we never saw his full potential. Um, he started uh, shooting heroin. Uh, I think I think as a teenager, uh, or maybe when he was in college, you know, had, had him gotten a letter to go to UCLA, which at that point John Wooden, and so and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was his running his running mate, and Kareem, who was the all-time leading scorer in the NBA, once said Earl Manigault is the best player of his size in the history of the city. That's saying a lot. Um, and to know that he never realized his full potential is, is kind of sad. But uh, on the same token, it's it's joyful because Earl used his story as as a lesson plan to a lot of youth. And uh, he died in the late 90s. But, uh, you know, he, his imprint is, is, is very large and uh, beautiful man. You know, it was great to know him. Got a chance to play with him as a kid. And uh, it was amazing to be able to pay homage to him and the film that Kevin and I created. A lot of the greatest legends of street basketball have stories that are about what could have been and, you know, dreams that got derailed. But at the same time, playing basketball on the playground is so much about what is rather than what could have been. It's right. everybody getting out there and doing it. That's I mean I think that's the point uh, you're hitting on the on the nose Jesse which is uh, the whole point of our film is to inspire people to play basketball. There's a lot of positive that comes out of it. Well, guys, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, man. Kevin and Bobito are touring the world with their movie, Doing It in the Park. You can also watch and buy it online at doingitinthepark.com. That's doing with no G at the end. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Shirley Caesar has been singing gospel music for over six decades. She's won 11 Grammys. Her performances still have her crisscrossing the country. But she makes the trip back to North Carolina in time for church every Sunday. Pastor Caesar's newest album of gospel music is called Good God.
As a teenager, there was one particular song that inspired her. I think I was 14, 13, something like that, uh, when I first heard the song, The Lord Will Make a Way Somehow. Thomas A. Dorsey's version, uh, written by James Fortune. I was not a recording artist at the time that I heard uh, the song. I've never recorded it. It was just one of the songs that whenever I would go out to churches and sing, The Lord Will Make a Way Somehow would be one of the songs. I'm one of 12 children. Years ago, as a child growing up, with my mom being a semi-invalid, my father had already passed. My mother did the best she could uh, to raise us, to send us to school, to give us what she gave us. And it was that song that lifted my spirit, lifted my mom's. It was through this song that I was able to see uh, us coming out of our situation. Dorsey's version of the song is sung here by Marion Williams. Like a ship that's tossed and driven But it was a few years before Shirley Caesar's life was truly changed by the song. I was in college, and uh, we, uh, we were out for the summer. I had no more money to go back to school. Around that time, she went to see Albertino Walker and the Caravans perform, first in Raleigh, then in Kenton. Because they needed a singer. One of the singers had gone home for, for a funeral or something, so... I felt that if Albertina Walker heard me, that I would get a chance to sing with her for a while and then later on go back to college, you know, make some money and then go back to college. And I told Dorothy Love Coates of the original Gospel Harmonettes that they were on the program too. I said, tell that lady I can sing that missing part. And sure enough, the Lord made it away. And uh, when they did call on me to sing, that was a song that I used. And while I was singing, I looked around and all of the singers had come out from the back to hear this little girl sing where they could hear me. And Albertina said, I got to have that little girl. So I sold my biology book 
and I caught a bus. Met them uh, in Washington, D.C., and the rest is history. But it all started from the Lord will make a way somehow. Thomas A. Dorsey's song. And you know, now that we're talking about this song so much, I just might record it. I, I just might. All I've got to do is let him have my burdens. Let him have them right now. And the Lord that so heavy. I look at the weight, the weight is shown upon my. Sweet relief in knowing, yeah, you know the Lord will make a way, yes, somehow. Shirley Caesar on the song that changed her life, Tommy Dorsey's version of The Lord Will Make a Way Somehow, sung by Marion Williams. Pastor Caesar's newest album of gospel music is called Good God. You can find more at ShirleyCaesar.com. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend stuff worth your time. This week, we're joined by Sean O'Neill and Alex Dowd from the AV Club. Hey, Sean. Hey, Alex. How's it going? Good. Hey, it's good. We agree. <laughs> Sean, let's start with your recommendation this week. It's a new album by a veteran artist named John Hopkins. It's called Immunity, just released in June. Let's take a listen to a little bit of a song from the record. The song's called Collider. So, Sean, this actually has a little bit of the sound of uh, the electronic music of the pioneers of electronic music. So I presume it's no coincidence that uh, John Hopkins has collaborated with Brian Eno. Well, yeah, he found him by working, uh, bringing him in to work on Coldplay's album when he produced uh, Vita La Vida. And Hopkins did a lot of the instrumentation on that album. Um, and then Coldplay actually took him on tour. Uh, it's kind of the reason why a lot of people probably overlooked John Hopkins, because when you mention Coldplay, you don't automatically think of progressive electronic music. What is it that you're excited about about this album? Well, this has been a really good year for electronic music uh, in general, but uh, this this is the first electronic album that I've heard this year that actually has a, it feels like a, a whole conceptual piece. Hopkins said it's meant to like evoke uh, a complete story of a night out. I, I've, I've really liked uh, Boards of Canada this year, I really liked Disclosure, I really liked a lot of other electronic music, uh, but this is the one that I keep coming back to because it always uh, has something new every time you listen to it. Alex, uh, let's talk about a uh, documentary that actually came out in theaters a couple of years ago but is just now coming to DVD called The Autobiography of Nikolai Ceausescu. 
Now, for those who don't remember, Ceausescu was the famously brutal communist dictator of Romania from the 60s through the 80s. And this is a film about his rule, but it's told in an unusual way. Um, Maybe you could describe it to us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's called The Autobiography of Nicolae Ceausescu. um, And it gets that title because though the dictator himself had no part in assembling the film, the footage used in it is entirely sanctioned footage, footage that he had shot during his administration. So what you have is, is you have this big collection of footage that sort of presents the official state version of Romania's history during that time. And what's really fascinating about it is that you don't see anything about the corruption. You don't see any of the starvation that was going on in the later years. So it becomes this this kind of fascinating self-portrait and one that sort of demonstrates the way that the people in power control a country's image and, and control its history. Are there any scenes that particularly stand out in your mind that are particularly vivid? There's a very funny scene where he's playing tennis, I believe, with some of his people and they're kind of blatantly letting him win which is really funny to see that on camera <laughs> um you, you can tell very much that he's he's not winning you know um, but they're, let, they're essentially letting letting him win yeah i mean i think a lot of power uh comes from what you're not seeing in the film from the stuff that that's happening off camera which is interesting alex dowd recommends the autobiography of nikolai ceausescu And Sean O'Neill recommends the new album from John Hopkins called Immunity. Sean is the news editor and Alex the film editor of the AV Club. You can find their writing online at avclub.com. Thanks, guys. When did you eat last? Curious about what's happening to all that food deep inside your guts? You should be. In just a minute, I'll talk to Mary Roach about human digestion from top to bottom. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, this is Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host a new show about being a mom. After you have the baby, how long does it take before you feel like your old self? Will you ever get to be sick again and lose yourself overnight in a NyQuil fog? Will you ever again sit on a toilet alone? Join us every week to find out. And remember, you don't have to leave your baby on a checkout conveyor belt to be one bad mother. Subscribe for free on iTunes or go to MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mary Roach has a theory that everyone secretly wants to observe bloody operations close up and stick their arms into cow stomachs and other super gross stuff like that. The bad news is that this is a terrible theory. I, for one, want no part of those things. The good news, though, is that at least one person does, Mary Roach. And that after she does all this gross stuff, she writes hilarious, fascinating books. Her first bestseller was Stiff, about what happens to our bodies after we die. She's written about sex and space travel and ghosts, and her newest, Gulp, is about digestion. Everything from our mouth to our butt, inclusive. As she puts it, the pie hole and the feed chute are mine. (laughs) Given the subject matter, I should warn you, we'll be talking about a few kind of gross things, and we'll be using a bit of uh, third-grade schoolyard-level language to describe them. So, Mary Roach, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Um, Before, I I was trying to think of how to structure this uh, interrogation, but then I read a 
bit of biographical information about you that I didn't know before uh, that I thought was telling, which is uh, that one of your first jobs as a writer was as a publicist for the San Francisco Zoo. Um, What kind of questions do you get as the publicist for the San Francisco Zoo? Oh, it's great. You get called uh, for any... Really, anything at all, but but I have to say, I was I'm not a I'm a, I'm a terrible publicist because I, I would get a call. Okay, here's an example. This really happened. We got a call one day that somebody called it said, "I hear that the cheetah was sucked dry by fleas," and this was in this was in fact somebody that the, the PR director wasn't that popular. And somebody did this, I believe, as a prank. I don't, I don't think the cheetah, in fact, was sucked dry. But my response as a PR person was should have been damage control and denial. And like, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows a cheetah can't be sucked dry by flea. That's ridiculous. Who told you that? But what I immediately thought was like, well, wow, how much blood is in a cheetah and how many fleas, how much, what, one bite, okay, how much can a flea hold? How many fleas would that take and how long? And I was like, and I got this conversation forgetting my role as a publicist, which was to, to defend and protect at all costs the San Francisco Zoo. Your fascination, so it didn't last very long. Your fascination sent you straight to the back of the envelope. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about... Um, about the process of digestion, and we might as well sort of go top to bottom. Um, so let's let, let's start with uh, taste and the mouth. You sent yourself to a test for olive oil tasters, along with some folks from the olive oil industry. First of all, why do you need to test olive oil by taste? Can't you just put it into some kind of chemical analysis machine and then that, that says whether it's good or bad? No, 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 you foolish little man. <laughs> no. Uh, okay, the the olive oil panel, which I tried out for, this was tryouts, like cheerleading tryouts, like school play. You go and you audition. Okay, this, the the panel, what they do, they are... They are providing a service to the olive oil industry. These are kind of forensic noses. Like these are people who can sniff and taste an olive oil and they can sense these defects, olfactory defects. Like it smells like pig farm waste fo- waste product slash manure slash vomit. That's an actual uh, in the category of fusty. That means, <laughs> okay, if you sense that, if you you as a sensory expert – smell that then you know this is the kind of this is forensics here you know okay the uh, these folks these olive oil manufacturers probably have some sediment in their tanks that has rotted and tainted the olive oil so it's not it's not kind of a they're not like a yeah what is you know gourmands and and um kind of effete people just sort of tasting for the heck of it they're actually industry Helpers, they're they're they can they can because they have trained these very trained noses. They can detect what's called defects, and then they can say, okay, this is what causes that defect. Here's what's going wrong in your manufacturing process. So it's, people think it's this glamorous thing. Oh, I'm an olive, I'm a professional olive oil taster, but in fact, they're tasting a lot of rancid, fusty, 
revolting oils. But of course, I taste them and I think they're perfectly fine, which I did. <laughs> there was one that was rancid and I was like, wow, this is good. Does anybody have any bread? So you mentioned that what these folks have is not necessarily extraordinary palates, but rather extraordinary noses. What's the relationship between the nose and the taste buds in determining the flavor of things we put in our mouth? Yeah, flavor. Flavor is a combination of taste and smell, but it's mostly smell. So most of, like, taste is kind of the shirt and pants. It's uh, sweet, sour, salty, bitter. And then that other one, brothy, that somehow got invited to the party. Um, that's So th- those are just the basics. And then every everything else, you know, cilantro and cherry and blackberry and cho- chocolate and vanilla, all of the, it's almost an infinite variety of stuff. That's all going on in the nose. It's all these aromas, which are gases. These are gases that are being released in your mouth and wafting up through your, this is the part I like, your internal nostrils. We have a set of, we have two two sets of nostrils. You have internal nostrils. They don't have any hair in them. They don't need to be, you don't need to buy a nose hair trimmer for them. But anyway, it's wafting up into the nose. And that's where uh, a lot of the experience of enjoying food happens in your nose. I mean, if you're a wine professional, a wine, somebody who's a wine taster or a wine, uh, you know, if your, your job depends on, uh, making fine discriminations and descriptions of wine, you could you could practically throw away your tongue and still do your job. That's amazing. Let's talk about some of the stuff that goes on inside of your mouth uh, when you put food in it. First of all, there's saliva. Um, where does saliva come from? Like, what is it, and, and what leads it to flood into our mouths? Uh, there's. Well, there's two kinds. There's there's the the one that floods into your mouth when you are eating, is called stimulated saliva, and that is that's the kind of prettier sibling. There's unstimulated, which is kind of background mucusy, kind of keeping your tissues moist. But when you put something in your mouth and chew it, chewing stimulates saliva. And what I love is that you can you could put a sock in your mouth and start to chew on it, and your body will go like. Okay, boss, I guess you want to eat a sock. I'm here to help you. I'm going to moisten that sock. We're going to get it down. I'm going to, I'm here for you. Uh, and I did, I was in this lab in the Netherlands, this beautiful Italian woman named Erica Saletti. She's, she's a saliva researcher. And she, we, we, she got out these, they're these little, in, in Italian, it's il tampone. It's like a cotton plug. It's like a tampon. And you chew on it. So it absorbs all of this uh, saliva that's being generated. And then they take the, il tampone, the plug, and they put in a centrifuge, and then you end up with this little tiny beaker, cute beaker, full of what (laughs) appears to be water. You would have no idea if you tasted it, smelled it, looked at it, you would say, oh, that's water. And But even though, even though you know that, uh, it's very, very hard to get anybody to drink a beaker of their own stimulated saliva. I tried. I tried to get Erica Saletti to take a sip of her own saliva, and she wouldn't do it. And she's like the scientist who's in charge of studying the fact that it's okay for you to drink your own saliva. She's the she's the saliva gal. That's right. Yeah, I, I know. And I said, but I said, but she goes, yeah, I know. Every day I'm drinking it. I know this, but even me, no. And I kept I kept sort of pushing her. Finally, she just went, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but saliva, okay, to answer your question, what is it? Uh, besides moistening socks or whatever you, uh, cotton plugs and food, <clears throat> so you can take them down. Um, the other thing it does is protects your teeth. If you drink anything acidic like wine, cola, orange juice, vinegar, if you like to drink vinegar, uh, you feel, and if you're paying attention, which I was in the lab that day, you feel this gush of saliva that is coming in to save the day. It's uh, diluting the acid in your mouth, which protects your teeth. And if you see, Erica showed me slides or uh, photographs of teeth of people who don't produce saliva or very much saliva, and it's really remarkable. Their teeth it just dissolve. Uh, there's these brown patches, and uh, acid is very effective at uh, it so, literally softening your teeth enamel. So saliva is just, it's doing this heroic thing. And, and we just think it's spit and are repulsed by it. You know, it's, it's funny fair. that you mentioned that even a saliva researcher who knows that she drinks her own saliva every day won't drink her own saliva once it leaves her mouth. Um, that's also the case for bolus. Um, explain to us what bolus is. <laughs> Bolus. I think Bolus would be a great name for a really hardcore heavy metal band. <laughs> Bolus. Opening for Slayer. Um, I think that, uh, oh, anyway, so Bolus is, uh, a Bolus is, that it's a mass of saliva moistened chewed food that is in the swallowable state, meaning it's all set to go down the chute. And a bol. I mean, the word Bolus applies to other uh, other things as well. But anyway, the oral processing experts, there are scientists whose area of study is oral processing. Your mouth is kind of a Cuisinart, very fancy, very expensive if it were on the market, I should think. Uh, Cuisinart. So the bolus is uh, really just food. You know, you put food in your mouth and your teeth take it apart into little tiny particles, and then your tongue and cheeks and saliva uh, reassemble it into a swallowable Bolus. Let's see how many times I can say bolus. <laughs> Plural, boli, <laughs> I guess. Before we leave the subject of the eating of food, I do want to talk about dog food for a second. At what point did it occur to you that is, if you were studying the digestion system, you'd better go talk to the dog food people? <laughs> That's a really good question. It's kind of amazing that that happened, and it's still in the book. Okay, this is what happened. I called the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia, and I wanted to go. They do research with babies and uh, stuff uh, uh, having to do with at what point do babies learn to accept or reject food? Can you uh, change their acceptance or rejection of food? Anyway, they work with babies, and I thought, well, that would be interesting. I'll go and spend time with, with these uh, baby researching people at the Monell Center, and they said, oh, no, you can't come here because uh, if you're in the room with the babies, the babies will be looking at you and paying attention to you, and you will ruin the study. You will ruin the study. It won't be uh, effect- accurate. It won't, you'll, you'll, you'll bias the results. So I wasn't able to do anything there, and I, and I was saying, well, what else, uh, what else can I do? And then somebody said, well, why don't you – I have a colleague who works in the pet food industry – Maybe you should talk to her. So I called this woman, Nancy Rawson, who used to be at Monell and now works at 
AFB International, which makes palatants for kibble. I, I like to say kibble, too. <laughs> kibble, bolus. Anyway, so, uh, and, and uh, I hadn't thought about that before, but they uh, have to do consumer panels just like any other food company. They've got to take the food out to the consumers and see how they like it. And, of course, it's a little more complicated or less complicated, I guess, because the animals can't fill out forms and tell you how much they like it. So you have to have people who can interpret their behavior. And I thought that sounded like an interesting thing to go and see. So when you're making dog food, what are the goals? Well, you have two that are somewhat in competition. You have to please the dog and be appealing to the dog, and you also have to be appealing and pleasing to the owner. And the owner, while, of course, the owner wants the pet to be happy, the owner also doesn't want to deal with something smelly, disgusting, off-putting. So the (laughs) food has to kind of appeal to them as well. Let's just say they don't want to deal with something smelly, disgusting, or off-putting at any point in the eating and digestion process from the beginning to the end. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> they've all this is so not only they have something where the dog's going to or cat's going to appear to really enjoy it and they can stand to be around it, but also when it comes out the other end, they're looking for something in the case of a dog, the texture matters. They don't want something runny. It's got to be something you can, you know, take your New York Times sleeve, put it over your hand, easily pick it up. You don't want to be like dealing with something runny and that so that's that's a consideration and and if they could and this is tough if they could the holy grail would be a food that comes out smelling okay not smelling like dog poop but that's hard to do <laughs> well especially because i mean when you talk about what a dog wants i mean i've got two dogs coco and sissy and uh, if i'm walking down the street the thing that is the most amazing to them, the highlight of their <laughs> month, is a mostly decomposed squirrel. That oh, yeah. is what they want. Oh, yeah. I, I, years ago when I wrote Stiff, I went to the body farm, okay, and I, I had this pair of boots. The body farm is where they, uh, researchers study human decomposition for various reasons. And uh, what happens in the late stage of decomposition is so it's a lot of like a big kind of puddle of uh, the, the soil is very impregnated with <laughs> decomposed liquidy stuff. So those boots, and I, I liked these boots. They're kind of like work boots. And I, I came home and I cleaned them. I soaked them in Clorox. But no matter what I do, I'd walk around the neighborhood and dogs would come over and just like s- stare at my sh- sniff my shoes like, <laughs> you are the most fascinating person in the world. They, like, they couldn't get enough of me, so I finally had to get rid of the boots. So, but yes, dogs, yes. So, People, on the other hand, don't want to smell <laughs> decomposed, late-stage decomposed human bodies. So um, I have an admission to make, which is I, I had a dog as, as a young kid, nice dog named Sonoma. And <laughs> I don't think I stopped secretly eating dog food until I was like four years old. I think there may have been a solid 18 months to two years where I would sneak over to where my dog's kibble was kept and eat a piece of dog kibble. And I only yeah, vaguely okay. remember yeah. this, but needless to say, I'm frequently reminded at family gatherings. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I ate Purina cat chow for a while, <laughs> not for very long. And I think I did it mainly, A, to get attention, yeah, to get attention and to kind of be tough. I also would eat peanuts with the shells on. Um, 
I, I wasn't a popular kid, and I, I got attention however I could. <laughs> that was, and, and kibble, Purina. It's not that bad. The people at AFB, uh, they said to me, if it smells really good and you're hungry, you try it out. You know, you think, God, this is going to be good, and then you eat it, and you're like, okay, it's not very good. <laughs> Is it? I remember there used to be a guy who would go on David Letterman, and he would take out the fancy cat food, and he would eat it as pate because that was his <laughs> job, not to eat yeah. it as pate, but uh, to eat. Are there people there eating the dog food as well? There's a cat. F- this this ties back to the olive oil flavor panelists. There is or was in Canada a cat food flavor panel, and these were humans, and they were trained. In the subtleties of wet, this is wet cat food, and you had to really, you couldn't just sort of take a, you know, dab it on your tongue and go, yeah, okay, it tastes like tuna. You had to <laughs> put it in your mouth and and move it around. That the the protocol was, and this is two protocols: meat chunk and gravy gel separate. You had to try them separately, <laughs> and you had to put them in your mouth and move them around for ten to 15, I think it was ten to fifteen seconds, and swallow up portion. So this was, you were really getting down into it. And so they came up with these official descriptors. I think it was Ophelia, Tuna, Herbal. Uh, there were a couple of others. Uh, and and the, I guess the idea here was you can't really talk to a cat about why it likes a certain food. So they, they thought, well, maybe this could, we could have a crack the code here. We could have these people who, who really knew pet food. And then if the cats really dug this one brand, they could sample it and go, oh, all right, I know what's going on here. You've got a combination of, you know, herbally, <laughs> ophily with overtones of rancidy. And that's why the cat loves it. So there was, but I don't, I don't think this technique caught on. I feel like those people should get time and a half for their time on the cat food panel. <laughs> like when they're off the frozen, the, the like Hormel frozen foods panel and they're on the cat food panel, that qualifies them for time and a half, right? I think so too. But yes, okay, you know, they, it, when they started this project, they were worried about people dropping out. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, they're like, I, we want this is, a, this is going to be a little time consuming and we want to know that you're going to stick with it. So they had them rate different wet cat foods on how much they liked them because they didn't want they wanted to have people that didn't really just like hate it they thought they thought if the i think that they expected if we could get people sort of you know in a three or four on a scale of one to ten but amazingly the average rating came in between neutral and mildly like so they, it was like people people didn't really mind it. i think maybe it does taste like pate i guess it depends how fancy the feast is right yeah, I'm sure. When I was at, when I had cats, and this is really, I feel really awful about this now that I've done this book, and I've never shared this with anyone but you, Jesse, but I had cats, and um, there was a little store on Haight Street near my house, and the cheapest brand was called Kitty Queen Meaty Treat, and it was super cheap, and now I'm thinking, I, I, that probably wasn't even meat. I don't even know what was in that cat. I probably killed my cats. <laughs> <laughs> Kitty Queen Meaty Treat. <laughs> well, before I don't even know where they got that. You never saw that product anywhere else but this little it was called Bargain Market. That was the <laughs> store. <laughs> it's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Mary Roach is a science writer who dares to go where most people will not. She's written about cadavers, sex, the afterlife, outer space, and now the human digestive system. Her new book is Gulp Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. 
So one of the things about digestion is that it happens inside our bodies, like deep inside our bodies. And mostly, um, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, we see something before it goes into our mouth and after it comes out of our butt. And we don't really know what happens in between. Um, and it's pretty hard to figure out what happens in between um, if you're, you know, a scientist in 1550. So how did we get any insight into what happens between uh, the bits that we can see? Well, the, the answer to, to the stomach portion of that story is there was this guy, well, two guys. There was this guy, William Beaumont, who was an army surgeon in the early 1800s. And he was out in the boonies of the Michigan territories, and they, he worked near a fur trading post. And one day this trapper was shot accidentally in the side and blew a hole open uh, through his side into his stomach. And his name was Alexis St. Martin. And uh, Beaumont was called to take care of Alexis St. Martin. Uh, and the hole never healed properly for a variety of reasons. But Beaumont, at a certain point, a light bulb went off above his head, and he realized, wow, I can actually look through that hole with a light, and I can see human digestion, and, and no one's ever done this. So Beaumont's like, wow, I can make a name for myself. I can be the first person to document what what is that juice in there? How does it work? What's it made of? Can I take it out of the body? Will it still do its job? How much of it is chemical versus mechanical contractions of the stomach, which you know kind of smushes things a bit? So he did all this with Alexis St. Martin, and so and I, you know, what what fascinated me about them was kind of the the relationship between the two because they they were together on and off for thirty years. They were kind of like science's odd couple, sort of like um, the perfect strangers. Yeah, uh, they, um, they they there's letters uh, or, or communications. Alexis St. Martin was illiterate, but he'd have people write letters to Beaumont. And there was always at the end, like, and love to your family. But ultimately, they both, they drove each other nuts because Alexis St. Martin would, he'd, he'd put up with it for a while. And then just as Beaumont was, you know, getting to the point where he's almost got all his data, St. Martin would take off, go, you know, on a bender, take off, go visit his family, what, and, you know, and, and Beaumont would be left there with an incomplete study going, St. Martin, I'll kill you. And uh, St. Martin, for his part, he's like, you know what, this is not fun. I'm tired of this. I want to go see my family. He was paid, but he was never paid quite enough, apparently. So uh, he, he, you know, he felt taken advantage of, certainly. So the two, it was sort of this mutual dependency and exploitation. And uh, I, it's interesting to get different takes on it. You know, you, in, there's lots of medical journal profiles of the Beaumont, like, oh, the father of physiology, a fine man. And then there's there's people come at it from the medical ethics side going, I can't believe how he treated this poor man, St. Martin. He had no re regard for his rights. And I think it falls somewhere in between. And it's also you have to take it in the context of the era, you know, that was uh, medical ethics was sort of in its infancy then when it comes to human subjects. I mean, you could see where you would want to skip town and go on a bender. If you spent your days <laughs> yeah. having someone lower a piece of food tied to a string, throw a hole in your guts into the insides of you. You could. You could, yeah. It was a uh, uh, in a little mesh. I love that he, he fashioned a little mesh bag on a silk. It's a silk string. I thought that, well, that's probably what all the string was back then. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and, and then he started 
kind of siphoning it out like somebody siphoning gas from a tank. Oh. You kind of have this rubber tube and a, a little flask, and, and, and that was apparently the hardest part. And then he'd go, I wonder if it... Uh, and that, okay, does it? Will it work outside the body? We have to have it body temperature. So he'd have Saint Martin hold a test tube under his arm, in his armpit, basically to keep it warm while he went around the house doing his chores because he was sort of he was employed as a houseboy to you know chop wood and it's hard to chop wood with a test tube of gastric juice held under your armpit. Okay, so. <laughs> So I think <laughs> on the on the one hand this is a horrifying story on the other hand they did learn some information and we have since added to that information so where does the nutrients get extracted from your food and what happens inside of your uh, tummy Okay the nutrients get extracted in the small intestine which comes after the stomach the stomach it's kind of like this, this like agitator washing machine type. There's a lot of mixing going on, uh, and there's enzymes and gastric acid, which not only digests but kills bacteria. That's one of the things that you know, you're, you're when you eat, you're introducing tons of bacteria into your system. So you have all these safeguards. Saliva also has antibacterial properties. So the gastric acid is killing bacteria. It's softening and digesting it, and it holds it in there for a while until it's. Uh, Chyme, a lovely word, C-H-Y-M-E, chyme. Uh, the chyme gets kind of spurted out through the pylorus, which is just pylorus in, in, is Greek for gatekeeper. It spurts it out into the, in, the small intestine is where all of the, or 80% of the absorption of nutrients happens. And if you look, you can, you can take a tour of the whole tube using what's called a pill cam. It's a pill, very, very big pill, about right on the edge of what you could swallow. And it's got a little light source and a camera, and it goes through your whole system snapping photographs. So, And it's amazing the difference. Like the stomach to me looked like this sort of footage from a James Cameron Titanic documentary, kind of murky and dark and green and little bits and things floating around. And then you come out and then you're spurted out into the the small intestine looks like velvet. It's very lush. These little fingers called villi, which are in, it, it, it's like terry cloth. The, the little projections are um, like the loops on the terry cloth, which are they're uh, increasing the surface area for absorbing. Then you go into the large intestine or the colon, and the surface is very smooth and shiny. It's kind of like saran wrap, but it's, it's pink, very pink, very healthy looking. This is assuming it's been cleaned out with colonoscopy prep. Uh, so anyway, so those are the, the textures you're most, that's what, mostly what you're seeing as you move along. You went to the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. We were in Philadelphia a few years ago and uh, had a, a curator from the museum on our show. It's a, it's a medical museum in the tradition of, uh, I guess, what is it, early modernity, pre-modernity, well, the 19th like century the, and earlier? Ca- yeah, the era of cabinets of curiosity. And it's people, just yeah. chock full of gross stuff. I mean, just wall to wall. It is it is uh, chock-a-block with <laughs> sickening deformities. Um, oh, I love that place, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a a necklace of hemorrhoids in that place. <laughs> there's... Uh, 
a jar of skin. Anna, I bet that the person who was on your show is Anna Doty, right? The curator. If you start, dis- or the if you start yeah. describing these things to me, one of them is going to be one of the ones that was placed in my hand before I knew what it was <laughs> live on air. <laughs> <laughs> What was it? Oh gosh, I don't remember. There was there were many disgusting things. I've sort of blocked the whole thing out of my mind. If if <laughs> if you search for Mutter Museum in Sound of Young America or the old name of our show, you will you will hear the the live audio of me going ah when they tell me what I'm holding. You know what I held? I was there just on book tour. I did a talk not in the museum but in conjunction with the, with the museum and Anna Doty and I were on stage together. But but I went over to the museum cuz cuz I'm a sucker for that place and uh they've got a pair of leeches they had they were doing a military medicine exhibit and so they were interested in having some leeches you know leeches were used for uh blood you know bloodletting basically uh and uh the guy the director of the museum had just fed one of them on his arm. He's got this bandage on his arm, and he's like holding this fat leech. I mean, it's the it's the size of a stogie. He's like, here, do you want to hold him? And I said, him or her? And he, and he got, well, they're hermaphroditic, so today it's a him. And, and just this big slimy thing with, and then it start it started. Its little sucker came out. I thought that if the sucker comes out, it's about to draw blood. So I'm like, ah! And I, fortunately, he was spotting me because he knew there was going to be a point when I was going to freak out and drop it. And, you know, he's had this pet for five years, so he's right there right there to catch him. I think his name was... Who's the guy who studied circulation? It's named after that guy. I'm forgetting. Okay. Anyway. I think his yeah. name was Nightmares for me tonight. <laughs> um well, as as we so often uh, find ourselves saying on this program, let's let's turn now to the butt stuff, uh, <laughs> uh, and specifically, uh, let's uh, let's go to the rectum. Um, you studied some of the remarkable properties of the rectum um, in what we'll call unusual circumstances. Um, but tell me what. First of all, tell me what it was about the rectum's actual function that led you to look at its more extreme uses. Okay. Well, I, I, I thought, you know, I like to have a, a kind of a narrative and a, a setting for each chapter and each part of the body that I'm focusing on. So the rectum, okay, it's a storage facility, basically. It, it's a, a place that you can hold the stuff and, you know, which is nice to be able to hold on to it. You don't have to immediately run off and empty it. So that's a that's a courtesy that nature has provided. So it's a storage facility. And it's pretty pretty effective and accommodating. So I thought, okay, who might have an interesting perspective on this? Uh, and it occurred to me that contraband smugglers make use of the alimentary canal, not just the rectum, but uh, the stomach as well. But I thought, okay, maybe there's something there. So I sent an email to the Public Affairs Office of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, the prison people. And I fully expected to get no reply, but the guy wrote back Wait, and hold said, on. yeah, we have... What, yeah. Tell me what the letter said, because it is amazing to me that you received <laughs> a response to... The, I mean, yeah. I assume it included best-selling author. Yeah, okay, it did. It said, my name is Mary Roach. I'm a I, the bio probably said best thing, but I said I'm an author and science writer, and I'm writing a quirky, kind of a quirky biography of the alimentary canal. And for the rectum chapter, I thought 
it would be interesting to uh, I, I said I know that you guys deal with some of the challenges of the fact that people use the alimentary canal for <laughs> smuggling. So I thought I would it would be interesting to come and talk to. And I fully expected to be talking to the people on staff who are trying to prevent the smuggling of goods via the rectum. But he came back to me uh, and said, yeah, we have a serious issue down at Avenal State Prison with cell phone smuggling, rectal cell phone smuggling. And uh, sure, you can go and talk to the staff. And we've also, we can set up an interview with one of the people who's sort of known for his smuggling, his capacity, his abilities, uh, <laughs> who apparently takes a little bit of pride in it. So, and I went in, I, didn't, uh, I, I was taken over to the yard where this guy, I call him Rodriguez, that's not his real name. And uh, so I'm waiting for them to fetch Rodriguez and I'm sitting in some guy's office. I said, what is Rodriguez in for? I'm just making conversation. I don't know. I kind of thought he was there for for drugs, you know, for, for dealing drugs, selling drugs. I don't know. That just seemed a logical connection. So he types in his name, and he, like, turns the monitor toward me. It's like all capital letters blinking, murder. <laughs> murder. Like, oh, really? Interesting. And then he goes, oh, yeah, okay. And so you guys you guys will be down the hall. There's an office that's free. So I'm just going to be sitting in this room with this murderer uh, asking him questions about his rectum. And I looked, and on my one of the questions I have on my little sheet of paper, I've got, do you, do you think it's possible that uh, hooping, it's, it's the slang for rectal smuggling, do you think it's possible hooping might be a form of what the Journal of Homosexuality refers to as masked anal manipulation? <laughs> like, you know, I don't need to ask that. I really don't need to ask that. I didn't ask that. But I actually, we did go there. We did go to that topic. I, I, not, not personally, I didn't uh, ask him that about himself and his own rectum. But anyway, he was very uh, uh, surprisingly accommodating in, conversationally. Um, in the, I, it's a, it just it's it's a very matter of fact thing in the prison environment. What was what was strange to me about prison was the normalcy of uh, of a conversational topic like contraband smuggling. I mean, that's just like talking about lawn care you know, or tire rotation. If you're in prison, everybody's tired of hooping. Hooping is just something people do, most people. So let's let's take a moment now to talk about uh, what my t- almost two-year-old son calls toots. Um, and what my <laughs> colleague here at MaximumFun.org, Dave Shumka, was obliged a- at home to call F-word for dirts, uh, <laughs> which is to say <laughs> farts. Um, what are farts? Farts are the product of bacteria in your colon, which are chowing down on the stuff that lands there. In other words, the food that you can't absorb or do anything with. You know, it's kind of like the compost heap. It makes its way down there, and there's bacteria. Like, well, I'll take that. They break it down, and in the process, they produce hydrogen and, in some people, methane. Pretty large quantities of it, and and and. Farting is actually a healthy thing because if you didn't fart, eventually your colon would burst, it would rupture, the gas would build up. So you're so it's a protective mechanism. It's a it's a, it's a good thing. Why it's healthy? Why are farts so stinky? That's uh, a tiny percentage of them is uh, hydrogen sulfide is the main culprit, but there's a couple other sulfur compounds, and hydrogen sulfide 
the human nose is incredibly sensitive. You can, two parts per million, you can detect hydrogen sulfide. Uh, uh, it's it's a tiny percentage of your farts, and that's a good thing because at a thousand parts per million, hydrogen sulfide is is lethal. It's really scary stuff. It builds up. Uh, people who work in I don't know porta potty business and pig farms where they have the you know the stuff falling through below the farm. It uh, there's uh, horrible, sad, tragic cases of people inhaling it. It causes almost instant respiratory paralysis and death. So it's not it's not to be uh, taken lightly, hydrogen sulfide. I was really surprised to learn in your book that there are there's there's something you can take that will not eliminate your farts, although that you know you you can take things to relieve uh, gas, but that rather will destinkify your farts. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea this stuff existed. It it's called Devrom. And I'm told by the guy who runs the company that it's available over the counter in any drug. I've never seen it. I don't even know what aisle that's in. What do you, I guess, digestive <laughs> Toots stuff? and such? I, <laughs> toots and such. <laughs> yeah, that's in uh, Toots and such, aisle six. Uh, um, Devrum is a, it's bismuth subgallate, and it's very effective at binding up the hydrogen sulfide. And he's this really nice misunderstood guy, and he, he has these. He showed me one of the ads. The, the company makes this this ad for its product was just like two older people, and the headline says, "Smelly flatulence." We don't have that anymore. <laughs> and it's like, and he can't get like he tried to get AARP and Reader's Digest to run the ad. They're like, no, you can't say f- smelly flatulence in our magazine. You have to say it, it, it eliminates gas. And he goes, but it doesn't eliminate gas. That's Beano. That's something else. And they're like, no, you can't say stinky stool or smelly flatulence. And he and, and so he can't get the word out. So I feel like I'm I'm, I'm helping Jason Milhelopoulos is his name, which I'm probably butchering. But anyway, Devrom. But you know, it's it's uh, not something the average person should really care about because everybody's everybody's farts stink. So who cares? I like the gastroenterologist said. You know what? When people come to me and they say my farts really stink, he says, "Yeah, there's something you yeah stuff you could do, but you know, like, just get a dog. So you, like, so you can blame the dog." Let's uh, let's talk for a second before we finish up about Elvis Presley. Tell me what you learned about the death of Elvis. Yeah, Elvis Elvis Presley died. Uh, well, the the death certificate says fatal heart arrhythmia, and and how he came to have that was uh, the medical term here straining at stool. He was trying to empty himself out, and what can happen, particularly if you have a weak heart, and he had a weak heart. His heart was not in great shape. Uh, something called defecation associated sudden death. The situation was made worse by the fact that he had a what's called a mega colon. He had a serious uh, constipation problem. Uh, his colon was three times at autopsy, three times as large as a normal colon, and very backed up. And uh, it was very hard for him. And I was interviewed. I spent an afternoon with his uh, longtime doctor, Dr. Nick, who, of course, people are familiar with Dr. Nick, Needles Nick, because he he gave Elvis and other people a lot of prescription drugs, uh, which does, that doesn't help. Uh, Painkillers in particular make you constipated, so that's obviously going to make the situation a lot worse. But uh, he didn't die of an overdose. He died of defecation-associated sudden death. It's a sad, it's a very sad 
story. I'm all, I was amazed that he loved to eat as much as he did. If I were that, if I had that kind of problem, I, I, I think I wouldn't be such a enthusiastic eater. Do you really think, Mary, that across America there are people who would relish the opportunity to stick their arm elbow deep into a cow or look at people's insides <laughs> from the inside out from close range? Um, is I, I know that's true of you, but do you sincerely believe that it's yeah, true of us? I yeah, they're called Mary Roach readers. They're Mary Roach fans. <laughs> it's not everybody. They're my people. <laughs> I think so. I don't think I'm the only one. I think I my theory is that I'm interested in the things that most people are interested in until they figure out they're not supposed to be interested in them. Now, like actually sticking your arm in. Yeah, I think there's a okay, not if I had to put a number on how many people would like to do that. Um, say I'm saying, okay, fifty-two percent. Fifty-two percent of people would be like, "Yeah, I'll do. I'll try it." What do you think, Jesse? I know you're one of the I'm a forty-eight. Big, I'm a big Mary Roach fan. Um, I know I have a brother-in-law in his early twenties, a student at UC Davis, the home of the cows with the holes in their sides. He's within arm sticking in range, <laughs> almost all times. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I, I get 52%. Yeah, but you know, that's like, that's like, like people in New York never go to the Statue of Liberty. They're like, I don't go to Alcatraz because they're right there. He can do it any time. He's like, yeah, the holy cow. I can do that next week. There's never a good time. That's what I think. Mary, I just talked over your number. What was your number? No, I'll, I'll, I'll buy your number. I <laughs> Mary Roach is the author of Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. Whether or not you're someone who would like to stick your arm into the side <laughs> of a cow, I think you'll really enjoy it. I know that I'm not one of those people, and I, I sure got a kick out of it. Mary, it's always great to talk to you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on I Adore You. We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. In 1978 and 1979, Prince put out his first two records. They're good. Good songs, enjoyable. You know, to an outsider, he looked like a guy who was going to have a long, fruitful career. Then, in 1980, he skipped right past good and headed on up to exceptional, astonishing, amazing. When Prince put out his album Dirty Mind... He might as well have called it, I'm a beautiful, badass genius, and you're all going to be eating my exhaust for the next 10 years. Dirty Mind is a ferocious record. Prince seemed to want to break every barrier at once. He was a guitar god holed up in a studio laying down intense drum tracks. He was pressing poppy synths into hard, nasty nuggets of jam. He was a tiny, effeminate man in a Speedo and a trench coat singing about all kinds of nasty sex. He was punk rock, new wave, funk, and soul. 
all at once. He was Prince. Dirty Mind is eight songs, less than 30 minutes in total. But it is a gauntlet throwdown. From here on out, Prince was Prince. And absolutely nothing could stop him. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Thanks to Paul Ruess at Argo Studios, who engineered the New York side of our interview with Bobito and Kevin. Interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music provided by the Go Team. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe free to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. And hey, guess what? Hi, KBCC. Hi, KETR in Northeast Texas. Thanks for picking up the show. Be sure to go to BoatParty.biz if you want to join us for the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. It's happening in September. And... As always, I want to take this opportunity to extend an invitation to Sugar Ray frontman Mark McGrath. If you want to come, drop me an email, jesse at maximumfun.org. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.